I am Citizen 44. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. I've done five episodes now. This is the sixth episode and I... I'm getting a good feel for what I'm doing. I'm enjoying myself. I think I've taken it out to a couple of different areas. I've been ranting my ass off. I think I'm going to kind of slow my roll and uh, focus more on the cool conversations I'm having with people and just giving you a little more insight to my personal life. Uh, Getting you caught up with my family, my son, as you know, was told that he can no longer stay with me until we can come to some reasonable terms around our relationship. Well, I hadn't really spent much time with him uh, in the past two weeks, and yesterday his mother sent me a text asking me if I would like to take him to his drum lesson and to get some food. And I thought this was a great idea, and of course I eagerly agreed. So around 4 o'clock I headed over to uh, Val's house, and I picked up Sam Uh, Let him listen to the podcast, the last podcast, a little bit on the way to the drum lesson and and chatted a bit. And then afterwards, we went to Vim Thai Restaurant in Medford for dinner. And we had a great time. And, you know, he's my son and I love him. And we really have an easy time of it for the most part. Uh, But, of course, lately, things have just been a little more challenging. He's a teenager And he's going through stuff, you know, emotionally, hormonally, uh, physically for sure. And uh, I'm just being cool, man. I'm hanging back. Uh, I don't want to be overly anything during this time period for he or my daughter. And uh, it's all going to be groovy, of course. Uh, My daughter actually confided in me the other day that she had been having a difficult couple of days and didn't know why. And it just, you know, came to me, as everything does, that perhaps, you know, being 16, she is going through maybe a little grieving period of letting go of some of her childhood. And, uh, and I think that resonated with her. And the next day I, I asked how she was doing and she said she was good. So I'm hoping that uh, that little bit of uh, potential insight gave her some relief. Uh, I'll get you caught up a little bit on my... Thai girlfriend, Boo, who, by the way, is the single funniest person I think I know. Doing a lot of the things she's doing is just funny because she's basically mangling the English language, which is hilarious in itself. And she just says a lot of very funny things. She's really sweet. You know, I think I have everything a person could possibly want in their lives. I literally have everything. I have an interesting job. I have a reasonably healthy family. I have good friends. I have reasonable health. I have a great place to live. I have a gorgeous girlfriend in Thailand who is um, 44 years old. By the way, I met her four days before her 44th birthday on October 18th. I guess it's two years ago now. That's crazy. No, it's not two years ago now. It's last year. What a dumb shit. People have asked me, do you miss Thailand? It's like, I don't miss specifically Thailand. I don't really miss anything. This is a something that has kind of freaked people out in the the past. 
I don't miss anything. I have everything. When I was at Burning Man in 2004, I remember somebody saying, hey, do you miss your kids? It's like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm at Burning Man. I don't miss anything. I am where I am when I'm there. I'm fully present. And when you're present, there's nothing to miss. Everything resides, you know, inside me. All my experiences and memories don't go away, except for, of course, all the memories that I seem to be losing. And I've attributed that to a regular cleaning of house, taking out the trash, so to speak, keeping my hard drive clean, because uh, I need more room for the download. So uh, I do tend to forget things, and not things that I need to remember, just things that are just not all that necessary to retain. So I've got a wonderful mom and dad who live in Southern California who support me and have a great relationship with. I have a, a cool sister who's very successful living in Southern California with a cool husband, Aaron, and their wonderful daughter, Haley, uh, my niece. I really, I have everything I could possibly want. And at the same time, you know what, if I fucking drop dead today, I'm totally cool with that too because it's been a pretty fabulous ride and I wouldn't change a thing. I have no regrets in my life. And I, I've mentioned that to my children, specifically my daughter is, don't have any regrets. It's pointless. If you didn't do something, you didn't do something, let it go. If you didn't do something that you wanted to do, take another stab at it and do that thing that you want to do. And I think regret is, is a debilitating thing, especially getting towards the end of your life and you start reflecting back on all the shit you didn't do. You should be reflecting back on all the great shit you did do. Uh, and I've done some kick-ass, amazing things, met some great people, really have had a well-rounded, fantastic life on all levels. So, again, if I got to go, adios, motherfucker. I'm ready to go. And I'm happy to be gone to whatever that means. I have no idea. But I can tell you I got super stoned one day. And I laid in bed and, and made myself go through this, I don't know, death experience. But I remember getting to a point where my body was completely tingling from head to toe. And I could see in this dark orange kind of haze a pinhole of light. And this light was not calling me, but it was making itself very present. And I came to the awareness that this light was so small, but that I wasn't going to need my body so I could get into this light, which was kind of this cool, you know, manifestation of imagery and a realization that I will be shedding my body and that I could fit into this minute space. So it was a good trip, you know. Simple weed, man. Smoked a little weed. I got to tell you, weed is the most powerful medicine for me on the planet. It's worked in so many ways, unexplainable, unimaginable ways. For instance, even like when I used to go to my buddy Robbie Lindauer's bar and uh, have a couple of whiskeys, maybe too much after playing some music, I would go home and smoke a big fat bowl and then I would lay in bed and just think about love. And when I did that, everything changed. The whole drunk thing would disappear and all that energy would shift into something else, something very magical and beautiful. So I'm, I'm giving you a heads up. If you go out and you get drunk, go home, smoke a bowl, and think about love. And speaking of anybody can do this, 
I'm going to do an experiment with you right now. This is something I learned from Eckhart Tolle like 10 years ago, listening to his Power of Now at the time CD. And the experience that I had, there were multiple experiences, of course, even like gray, ghostly, cool visual shit that was happening. It took about 45 minutes, though, to get past the fact that he sounded like um, Hitler. And uh, once I eased into it, he gives this, I don't know, demonstration of sorts where he tells, well, I'm just going to give you the, the experiment. I want you to think about your right hand. Literally put the words right hand in your mouth. When you feel something in your right hand, I want you to raise your left hand. Okay. Now, I want you to think about your left foot. When you feel something in your left foot, I want you to raise your right hand. Okay. What did you just do there? Because it's pretty universal that anybody and everybody can do this. Well, my interpretation is you just moved your energy around at will. And I'm sure no one's ever showed you this ever in your life. As a matter of fact, uh, I used to volunteer at the middle school here in Ashland, and I was in the leadership class one day, and I posed this to, you know, the 35 students that were in there. And nobody had ever done this for them and showed them this. And uh, when I was done, I walked to the back of the room, and there were 10 boys sitting around a round table, and they had put a piece of popcorn in the middle of the table and tried to move it. So just imagine you spend 15,000 hours with this exercise of moving your energy around. What could you possibly do? So this is just another one of these fundamental things that were not shown. I think it's pretty amazing. This is some serious Jedi shit right here. And it shows me that, one, we do have the ability to move our energy at will, and Two, we can push it outside of our body, which is a huge responsibility on how we interact with each other. And three, what the fuck could we do with that energy from a healing perspective? All kinds of things if we just honed in on that and practiced it. Just like Tom Stamper yesterday when I picked up Sam from his lesson told him specifically, all you need to do is practice and you will become a good drummer. I mean, it's that simple. You just have to practice. Have some discipline. Love what the fuck you're doing. And just do it regularly. My former roommate used to practice his paradiddles on his practice pad every day. And he is an excellent percussionist. And why? Because he practiced. He's not any smarter, really, on many levels than anybody else. He doesn't have any necessarily natural skills any more than anybody else. But he fucking practiced. And I heard him practicing every day. And then I went and saw him perform. And he's fantastic. And it's because he practiced. So it was cool to be in the room with Sam and uh, Tom Stamper while they wound down uh, his lesson. And uh, he gave me a little demonstration. And it was cool to see him hitting the practice pads. And he was working to a metronome, which is huge because I never did that as a late blossoming drummer until... I went into the recording studio and had to play to a click track. But he's learning off the cuff to play to a metronome, which means he can get some seriously solid timing down. 
I love Tommy, and I'm so glad he's working with Sam. And they seem to be building this really fabulous rapport. And again, I think Sam could end up being a monster drummer. So I'm hoping this is his thing, man. So I was stoked to take him to his lesson yesterday. It was awesome to come pick him up a couple of minutes before and see him sitting down in front of this practice kit and witness Tom giving him instruction and praise and nurturing. And I saw what a really fantastic teacher Tom is. And if I had any wherewithal, which um, I don't anymore because I just don't, uh, I would take some lessons from Tom. But I, I think I'll just divert my, my finances into Sam and invest in his future. I mean, I can play now. Uh, I don't play much anymore. And it kind of reminds me that I would like to. And maybe I need to figure out a way how to sneak into somebody's band or something and, and start playing a little bit. Uh, but if I don't, it's fine. Again, this is like dying. You know, I've done everything I want to do, really. I have. I mean, think about it. I've really done everything I want to do. I've traveled a little bit. I've created a family. I've lived the life on my terms. I beat cancer. Uh, I've done all kinds of shit. You know, it's fucking great. So, and that's why I'm doing this podcast is because my life is so fantastic. I need to let you know. And again, this is like practicing drums. You've got to practice being aware. You got to practice the four agreements. If you don't know the four agreements, here you go. This is something Don Miguel Ruiz came up with. It is kind of my, my filter system, my guideline to navigate through life. And it has eliminated almost all suffering since I've discovered it and since I've actually practiced it. Now, you know, I fuck up. And there are days where I notice, like, on all four agreements, I have totally failed. But at least I come to the realization and I can backtrack and fix. Uh, and I get a fresh start, like we all get. We all get a fresh start every second. We fuck up. You can go back. You can fix that. You can totally fix almost everything. So the four agreements are, number one, be impeccable with your word. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Number two, and by the way, I hope I have these in order correctly. Uh, number two is uh, don't take anything personally. What people do has nothing to do with you. What people do has nothing to do with you. Wear a fucking rubber suit, man. Don't let shit bother you because, you know, what other people do is their own problem. Number three, do not assume. Make no assumptions. Ask questions. Bail yourself out. These are things human beings struggle with all the time. So, number one, be impeccable with your word. Number two, don't take anything personally. Number three, don't make assumptions. And number four, obviously, of course, do the best you can. Because if you do the best you can, you won't have any regrets. I mean, that really is kind of your fail-safe right there. Tom Stamper is in the apartment with me. I'm so happy to see this wonderful dude who I have not really flushed out a, a full-fledged relationship with, but every time we're with each other, it's very sweet and easy, and he's such a nice man, a caring, loving man, and uh, I'm so happy that uh, he came in to, to have a little chat, and I'm so happy he's teaching my son how to play drums. All right, let's get this party started.
So I, I thought I'd sent you a link to the podcast. You don't even know what I do. No, I don't. Well, that's okay. Maybe that's better, frankly, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. This is not video, so intentionally, because I do not have a face for video. Oh, I disagree. Yeah. Well, that's very sweet. I disagree. Yeah. You, however, carry some <laughs> stuff with you that should be on something. If I'd known it was only radio, I wouldn't have shaved this morning. Oh, well, it's not even radio. It's less than radio. <laughs> less than radio. This is just recorded in my apartment, as you can see. Oh. Radio would be a facility with equipment and other people doing things and immediate broadcast and yeah this is none of that okay this is things i can do in my shorts and i can actually do in my underwear if somebody would tolerate that actually you can't even see if i was just wearing a shirt right now you wouldn't even know i was naked from the waist down at this point if i were in a restaurant i'd be saying check please check please right okay well you can have your check <laughs> and, and i will too. charge you for being here uh i'm glad that you're here and uh we have a new bizarre connection which is my son Yes. He's only had one lesson. Mm -hmm. I've paid for four. He didn't show yesterday. He also didn't call yesterday. True. So I'm not going to use the word disappointed because I don't have expectations on anybody. I don't want to be disappointed. I would hope that he would call or his mother because I, I gave her your contact information, you know, as if just in case. Mm -hmm. But this is obviously not on their list of priorities right now. So we had a little thing. And it's been a little bit of a continuous thing over the past couple of months, and it's not yet fully resolved. And so uh, that's probably why he didn't show. I don't know if it's, you know, to stick it in my fucking face, which is fine. I get it if that's, if he's making a point, like, you know, fuck you, dad, I'm not going, but he's actually cutting off his own nose because right. he's not getting the drum lesson. I know how to play drums. So anyway. Well, often, <clears throat> often uh, kids that age have no idea of the responsibility of you know owning up showing up that it's going to cost money if they don't and you know it's because it's not their money and they don't quite understand yet but if you can get them to understand that if at least to call it would offset the financial part of it yeah you know because i'm not going to charge you if he calls me the day before and says right. I, I didn't if I didn't practice, I, I'm sick, I've got something else I have to do. I hate my father and I'm not coming intentionally because of that. <laughs> right, something like Fuck that. Fuck him you know? and yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would have been nice. Yeah. Uh, and again, I let his mother know and gave her your contact information. Okay, so yeah. essentially they both chose right. to say fuck you, Dad, right, right. Mark, that we're not going. So that's fine. And it's an investment. The the other seventy five dollars is just an investment in our friendship at this point. So, and I'm I'm glad that you have it, and, and not that you can't use it. So, well, listen, because of our friendship, I mean, that's just next time you guys can get your heads together. Yeah. Just set up another. Yeah, when lesson. he's thirty, I'll have him call you set on up, his own. Set up another yeah. lesson. Yeah, maybe you'll hopefully have and spent hopefully that money still be by here. Then. Yeah, right, and me for that matter. <laughs> So, you are a drummer in the valley here. I am. How long have you lived in Ashland? 24 years. Ah, how do you like it here? I like it quite a bit. It's a great place. There's not too many places where you can go up to uh, mountain lakes and hiking trails and beautiful rivers and uh, two hours from the coast and still find a parking space. Right. 
Yeah, it's getting you know, a little more difficult. It is. I think we do like there is maybe some mutual parking karma here. Yeah. Like we all are granted that. You know, when I lived in San Francisco, I think I, I collected a thousand dollars worth of tickets in so my did first. I month. had my car impounded. Did you? Yes. Yeah. Luckily, I had taken my drums out the night before because I couldn't afford to get it out. The ticket prices, it was more to pay the, the tickets off than the car was worth. Were they $25 at the time? Oh, they were $50. Oh, so this is even after me. Because my I had a glove box in my BMW stuffed. <laughs> I fucking just stuffed it with tickets. I got away with paying 500 on maybe $1,500 worth of tickets. Pretty good. Yeah, it's good negotiating. Yeah. When did you live in the Bay Area? I was born in the Bay Area. Ah. I was born in San Francisco in 1954 and uh, then moved over to Marin County when I was quite young and was raised in San Anselmo, which okay. is a small town, very reminiscent of Ashland, actually. Huh. Your mom and dad came to San Francisco from? Uh, uh, in the service, he was, he was uh, brought over to Fort Mason hmm. from New York. He was in the Army, and he worked at Fort Mason as a uh, shipping transportation officer, a liaison between public shipping and military shipping. Wow. Make sure they didn't crash into each other right. and things like that. Right. Uh, for a long, long time. He, he retired at age 50. And uh, But what brought him out to California was the Army. Okay. And, uh, and that was at the end of World War II. Okay. And he commuted from Marin County for 35 years. He drove across and, the bridge across every day? Across the bridge every day. Wow. You know, and yeah. I have fond memories of going to meet him for lunch in San Francisco, you know, near the Fisherman's Wharf because it was close to Fort Mason. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating time. Really, it was a great time, too, and, and to be in the Bay Area. Was your dad a musician as well? He played guitar, and he actually later on in his life, at age 50, he, he decided to take up the violin. That is so bizarre. I know, it is just really I mean, only bizarre. because I, too, it, late in life, have I bought a violin when I turned 53. I bought a, a, wow. my first violin, which my daughter now has. And why did I say violin in such a weird, strange way? <laughs> uh, anyway. It gets so, weirder. He started taking lessons. And then he started making violins. What? So in his life, he, he passed away at age 72. He made about 12 violins, I think. 12 wow. violins and a banjo and a guitar. When he you were growing old, up, was he a craftsman he, like that? Did you no, notice any kind no, of capabilities no, coming out of him? All he did was get up and go to work every morning. Huh. You know, wow. up, at, up at 6, back home by 5.30. You know, it was like that. Well, he got to retire at a really reasonable age, he, so he still he had a did. lot of gusto he did. If he'd waited, he would have had a, a easier time of it financially. But I used to ask him, what do you do there? And uh, he says, uh, I used to fill waste paper baskets. What? I, mean, like, I filled waste paper baskets huh. and um, with wasted paper and things like that. I mean, he was like practicing basketball shooting? or No, just, no, oh, basically I, it was his... His cynical statement about the uh, the bureaucracy bureaucracy I using see. so much paperwork right. and everything, and it all goes into the garbage anyway. Right. So after about five years of retirement, he took a job. He was a fan of Eric Hoffer, which is the working man's philosopher, and uh, he took a job as a custodian in the local elementary school. And so he said, I, "Now I now I fill with, now I empty waste paper baskets." Ah, that's very philosophical. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it's very philosophical. Yes. So uh, he was a great, great, great man. 
And what did your mom do during that time? She raised six children and also had a childcare sort of uh, babysitting kind of thing. Did she do it at your at your she home? She did it at the home. So she had all of you and many others. Well, yeah, we were spread apart, so several of us had left the house by then. Okay. But you know, this was all in a way to make make ends meet. Right. How many of you are there? Uh, there are six. I mean, okay. So and and boys, girls. Three boys, three girls. Oh, you're like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> But you all came from the same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was born, about two years later, my father heard of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and joined it. In what way? You, you could pay a membership. Oh. And uh, every summer from then on, we came to Ashland, Oregon. So all Starting through, when? Starting in 56. Okay. Uh, he bought a small piece of property up on Granite Street, which had a cabin on it. So we stayed there, but then eventually they rented that out to uh, the costume designer at the Shakespeare Festival, who lived there for several years. Huh. And we would camp in the park, Lithia Park. So we, we did tent camping in Lithia Park. And you could do that years. back then? Oh, yeah. $4 a night. You pull your car into Lithia Park and find yourself a tent space. And we'd leave everything there. Uh, Coleman stoves and sleeping bags and tents and food and everything and go see the plays come back and everything would be just wow. right, right where it was that is very sweet yes yeah. very sweet mm -hmm. and after they closed the park for camping we went out to Immigrant Lake and Immigrant Lake at that time had it was just sort of a mud hole with a bunch of dry grass around it mm. and lots of rattlesnakes and stuff like that one of our tents was eaten by a horse or a mule or something. That, eaten? Yeah, it would actually ate a hole through the... Because there was a fence behind the tent, right. like a barbed wire fence or something. Yeah. And this horse came up and started chewing on the canvas. That's it was funny. an old army tent. Right, you know? that's funny. And, uh, yeah, was it one of your dad's army tents? I, it was. Ah, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, did he see any action? Well, no. He had vision problems with his left Lucky eye. Lucky him. Yeah. I mean, you know. So, um, yeah. But so he, what did he do in the army? He was a lieutenant, uh, second lieutenant, yeah, and just you know, did the paperwork and all that for. So the, he was just paper army. guy. Yeah, he was he was intelligent for one thing. So yeah, they they at that time and probably to, probably now they they don't really send the best and the brightest off to get shot, you know. Well, that's by design. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he was lucky. Yeah. Cool, man. So, growing up in San Francisco, that's wild. Yeah. I lived there eight years, so I. And I may be there the last of the, the good times because I would not go back there now for anything, actually. I know I know that feeling. It's very the, sad what it's become. The last time I was down there, I came home so frustrated and, you know, uptight. And just the traffic down there is it's ridiculous. It's alien. It's horrible. Yeah. And the old restaurants that we used to have so much fun and great food and, you know. To what was your favorite place to eat? Well, we used to, we, there's so many. I know. Uh, you could hit a rock. One was the Gold Spike. The Gold Spike restaurant was, was a small place huh. uh, in North Beach. It's closed down now. But it huh. was just a typical Italian family sit-down style restaurant, you know, where you pick your entree, but the rest comes. It's just salad right. and minestrone soup and French bread. And, and that was there for so many years, and it closed down. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is also the... Uh, the Great Eastern on Clay Street. It's it's actually where Obama visited when he when he was in the Bay Area and had dinner there. Now they have pictures of Obama. And, of course. But 
that was the kiss of death because right. now it's a tourist trap. Right. Like, when I went there, it was like, where did all the great service go and all the great food? And yeah, they got to just keep up with the And now, now it's like, you know, you have to be rich to eat there. Huh, interesting. Right around the corner, there's a great Chinese restaurant where you can get something. Right. Still, you know. Where did you live? I lived in San Insomo, which is in Marin. On but, the other, other so you didn't live oh, in the city it, Oh, at no. All. When I went to this, this yeah, I, I, I went to San Francisco State University and uh, graduated from there. Uh, I lived on Chestnut Street, yeah, and I lived out in the avenues, 47th and Irving. Ah. Um, I lived on Chattanooga Street for a while, which I don't is remember that overlooking street. Mission. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the one that goes up that has the kind of vista there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And behind it is Dolores Park. Right. So, yeah, I, I was all over the place. Over 47 there. and Irving, you were just a couple blocks from the beach. I ran the beach every day. Wow. You know, to wake up. I love that town. I must have ran... You know, quarter mile or something. Wow. Well, you were right there at the beach. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. How did drumming start? I was about 10 years old and couldn't stop beating on things. Yeah. Forks, were you, were you forks and knives on the table. Uh. I'd get in trouble for that every dinner time. Uh, my brother played guitar, and we had sort of a rich, eclectic history of records and things. So I was, you know, I, I was listening to Lead Belly before I knew what blues was. And, and Beethoven, and you know, it went from it from Beethoven to Lead Belly. That's a pretty good stretch. And uh, and then my father was from Kentucky, and so there was a little bit of that legacy going on to the Carter family and uh, the older old school uh, ballads and uh, songs from from old Kentucky are fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, amazing. I'm not grace familiar. Game. Well, most of it came over from Europe anyway. They're all right. ballads and uh, you know poems and things that came from Scotland, Ireland, and England, Germany, too. And, uh, you know, that's that's our that's our, our history and legacy of folk music. It right. all came from somewhere else. Right, really, right. You know, but it sure had its own twang to it. And right. So I was uh, fascinated by drums, though. For some reason, I mean, the drums all... If we drove by a music store, I'd be looking for the drum set in the window, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. You know, Mark. Yeah. 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 And uh, so finally, I, I got a couple of lessons, drum lessons from a man named Chuck Brown, and he was an amazing drummer. He came from Berkeley School of Music. I wow. didn't know that then, wow. but he studied with Alan Dawson, the great jazz drummer, and uh, taught and roomed with Tony Williams. Tony Williams, the uh, Miles Davis's drummer. Wow. He, he was playing with Miles Davis when he was 17 years old. Uh, he came in and he was so arrogant and haughty. Uh, Alan Dawson said, "Chuck, you take this one. I can't handle him." He said to my drum teacher, oh. "You take Tony Williams and help him out because right. I can't handle his arrogance." Wow. You know. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of the early Tony Williams stuff, and a lot of really great drummers. If you go back to Alan Dawson and listen to him on YouTube. You know, a lot of good footage now on YouTube. You see where it all came from. Right. And this guy was unbelievable. Hmm. And he, he had a system. So, you know, it's, just, it's actually a system I have to teach to a certain extent. You know, I studied with Chuck for six years. And Chuck taught Terry Bozio and David Garibaldi and Michael Shriva Santana. Wow. You know, a whole host of great drummers on the West Coast. He sort of shaped quite a bit of the West Coast music scene mm. 
for years and years and years, Brian Hargrove of Third Eye Blind, for mm -hmm. example, yeah. and then drummers, you know, later on. There's a drummer I'm in contact with now. It's a young man named Ram Eshawar. His uncle is Sakir Hussain, so he's bringing this whole Berkeley School of Music trap drum set routine and mixing it with tabla, and it's really interesting. He's mm. he's attending UCLA now, and uh, I so he he sends me some stuff over the computer sometimes, and he's got this little band called Global Village, and it's great name. It's great. It's great stuff. There seems to be more of an international thing happening with drumming anyway that right. there, there's a lot of incorporating of Spain and you know oh yeah I think they, they started off calling it world music you know? yes world that, music. Well, that was just kind of a, yeah. an easy way to just try and say everything in yeah. a couple of words yeah. yeah but yeah that's what seems to be ha and I like that that means that there's some inclusiveness happening in music it's they're producing some wonderful music yeah D doesn't David Byrne I mean that's part of his whole thing yeah, too yeah. right he went really heavily into this uh, South American stuff yeah and I like that we a lot of our American music makers did reach out a lot my favorite is Ry Cooter when right. he went to Cuba and right that's, my, yeah, that's Vista, one of my favorite movies too. Buena Vista have, Social Club yeah. uh, just turned me around that's for sure it's a fantastic documentary yeah. i highly recommend it to people yeah i own it it's really me too I yeah the too. music the people just the whole vibe yeah makes you just love music even yes, if you're not yes, connected to it you, yes. can, you can't not love music you yeah. know the only time i felt that in my time in america in the united states traveling playing music was around memphis and uh helena arkansas and those places where when people discovered that I was a musician, they they sort of had a reverence mm. for all of us, you know. Oh, you you guys play music. You're you're here playing music from from where? From Oregon. You're all the way here, and they treated us with reverence. It was because that's how important music is for them. Right. You know, I hate to say that. You know being around that for a couple of weeks, we come back into Oregon and we're like struggling to get 50 bucks to play at a you know, bar. And, and nobody really... When was this? This was, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, yeah. something like that. I think it's ongoing. I don't think it was like a uh, win matter. I think that it's just a cultural difference. Right, no, you no. Know, up here, sure. uh, oftentimes, no matter who I'm playing with, jazz, blues, or rock, it seems like I'm really just interrupting the mating ritual. <laughs> You know, it could, it could be anything. And right. in truth, it's being proven that it could be anything. They're sticking on the CD player or, you know, something else. You know, yeah, they've streaming. got a disco DJ spinning records or yeah. whatever, you know. Well, the, so, I think the States have become, it's kind of the dark times for music anyway. Well, In not, my opinion. Yeah. In my opinion, I can agree to some extent about this area yeah well I just <laughs> but, think you know Memphis was a whole different scene right and that was what was shocking and, and really really wonderful wasn't that New Orleans too I mean there's just certain well, pockets I, of the you country know, I, I haven't I haven't been lucky enough to, to hang in New, New well, Orleans well we have we have people in town that have spent a lot of time in New Orleans and that was part of the reason they went yeah you know Joe Deal yeah he moved and you know he, I'm sure he plays music as much and as often as he wants to yeah he's in New York now Ah, interesting. And he's ah. going to be moving to, where did he say he was moving to? I just just got a little thing from him. Anyway, they're, they're going to be moving to Connecticut or something. Mm. You know, I thought it was a little bit strange, but North Carolina. Ah. Yeah, that okay. makes more sense. Okay. Because there's a, there's a vibrant music, music scene coming out of North Carolina. Right. 
This used to be a pop in town, you know. Oh, yes. I remember. I mean, I've been here 15 years. I used to go out five nights a week before That's you know, right, I even Mark. knew I could play music. That's right. And yeah. uh, when I first moved here, there were 17 venues to play, play in. 17? 17 venues. How many are there now? Two, yeah. maybe. Unless you count maybe solo acts or duos or something where, you know, you can tuck yourself back in the corner. You have... Robbie DaCosta. Yeah, Bella Fiore uh, Winery which they spent millions of dollars on the f mosaic tile floor and they don't want to pay their musicians. It's ridiculous. It's so unbelievable. It's like you guys are just this expendable, disposable, yeah. temporary. Necessary evil. Right, like, oh my God, we have to have music? Yeah. Really? Do we have to have yeah, yeah. music in here? Do yeah. we have to entertain people beyond giving them alcohol? That's too bad. I know. It's ridiculous. That's a really strange mentality. Anyway. It is indeed. Okay, so you're in the Bay Area. You're taking lessons with this incredible individual. Yes, and uh, the money, our money scene in the family was such that I just couldn't do it any longer. So I, I, it was a very short time with Chuck at that point. And then later on, when I had gone through all these different, I, I mean, I kept playing, and I played with a group called the Dan Hayes Blues Band, which was How old were kind you? of the hot high school band. Okay. I was 14, Yeah, 15, okay. Is that when you really started 16, playing with other people? Yeah. Yeah. And, well, eighth, seventh grade was my the first band we did. And who was that? Uh, that was called, what was it? That was called the Aquarian Age. The Aquarian Age? That's yes. funny. It sounds very middle school. Yeah, yeah. Junior high school. Name. It was great. Yeah, yeah. junior high school yeah. for sure. Yeah. And we we were covering uh, the Velvet Underground. Oh, you know, cool. Things, things like that. So yeah. it wasn't totally square. But, no, no, no. Yeah. 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 Where did you guys play? Did you play at school uh, or? You know, church basements and things right. like that. I can't remember the name of the club. It was pretty funky. It was run. It was a church thing, you know. So yeah. they were trying to get kids to church, and they were doing it by setting up a little club where people could come and dance. It's pretty smart. Yeah, fun times. So yeah, after that, uh, I got involved with a man named Raphael McNally, who was the music director of American Conservatory Theater. I didn't know that, but I, I met him at a party and just sat in on drums, and and he got my number and he called me and said, you know, let's let's do some work together. So I ended up playing at the Inverness Music Festival with him for years in a row. And uh, that was great. And then he hired me to play drums at American Conservatory Theater for like two and a half years, two, three years, I guess. And that was an incredible experience. That was like the super big time, you know, that was really difficult because I wasn't all that well read musically right but I, I had to do a crash course and it worked right you know and it was it was great and then after that I went to San Diego for a for a little while went down to a junior college down there sort of following a girlfriend basically oh <coughs> yes he has a life before you by the way Tom brought somebody with him, his girlfriend, which is fine. I, I had no... We have no secrets from one another. No, clearly. And, and now the three of us actually have no secrets uh, from one another, which is fine. I'm just building the family here. What is your name again, young lady? Cindy. Cindy. Say hi, Cindy, because... Hi. Yeah. It's cool. I, I, I like that. I, I like the fact that something different has occurred. Nice. You're bringing somebody. So, okay. Yeah. Anyway. So... so uh... San Diego, I, I, I put my drums in the closet. I didn't want to play anymore. I was, Why? 
I was just done with it. I was uh, kind of going through that phase I imagine most of us go through where you want a little more security, you want to be looking towards something yeah. that offers that security. Yeah, you mean fear? You got fear that you're not going to make? Yes, that is the, that is the, the main motivator, fear. fear that you're going to fucking starve. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. There was a bit of that, yeah. for sure. Yeah. The basal... DEOG basic educational opportunity grant wow. wasn't cutting right, it. Right, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, and so. that's what we should have. That should be granted to us immediately so we can just keep yeah, playing. Exactly. Yes, of course. Yeah. Like they do in other countries. Right, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I met some people down there and they, we started talking and boom, I'm playing again. Of course. You know? And uh, so just got hooked up in a couple jazz bands and some other stuff. Uh, moved back up to San Francisco, and that's when I started San Francisco State. And my girlfriend at the time, I talked so much about Chuck Brown that she called him. I had an old card that she found and called him, and for my birthday gave me drum lessons with Chuck Brown. Wow. Which that's... at the time was $40 for four lessons. What do you get now for a lesson? Well, I get a hundred, but Chuck was getting two, two hundred last time I talked to him. Right. Yeah. So I went over there, and it turns out that she had said, uh, "Yeah, he took a couple lessons a long time from you, a long time ago," and I have a, a cut off finger on my right hand, so he remembered that. Ah. He, you know, he's Tom Stamper. Did he have a cut off finger on his right hand? Because he he in his intense study and the way he is still he designed a special way for me to hold the stick that's oh. you know you can do the right technique with that part of the finger gone yeah so i was lucky enough to have a can little I tell you left this is the there. first time i've ever even noticed your wow finger. that's amazing seriously yeah and i'm a graphic designer yeah. i notice everything yeah. that is the first time i've ever noticed that you are uh yeah with yeah. that how that happened uh car door when i was five ah so you're used to it by now. I was used to it a long time ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but if it happened now, I, I swear I'd collapse and I wouldn't be able to no, do of course. anything. Oh, my God. Of course. Wow, adaptation, man. You yeah, know? it's, it's amazing, cool. you know. And it's cool that you had somebody who could well, guide you yes. to leverage. And he was digging it because he liked that kind of a challenge. Right. You know, I saw him do this with many people. Some Most of the time it was a psychological deficiency. Right. You know, they'd come in wanting to play and they would be bullied at school they'd be the weirdo they'd be you know uh maybe not so quickly adapting to being able to play you know mm. and he would hang with them and hang with them and hang with them and a couple of those guys became the best drummers huh. i mean they they passed a certain place and they were no they were drums they were it and that's what made them gave them that sort of uh pride and confidence confidence yeah and man some of those guys really punched out as great drummers mm. anybody specific that you recall well me well besides no, I'm just you kidding. no of course you <laughs> i'm kidding that's I'm funny kidding. no i mean these are the kinds of guys that you used to see in in gym or something when you're seventh eighth, seventh grade eighth grade right. high school and they're skinny and they're not developed. The 90 pound weaklings. Yeah, and they're and they're doing like two pull-ups, you know. <laughs> right. And these other guys are just born to rock. Right. You know, they come out there and they do 15 of right. them, you know. Right. And this poor guy is giving it 100% and can only do two. Right. And these other guys are giving it 20% and they're doing 15. Right. What's the righteousness there? And they had a color-coded 
gym trunk system. So if you could do the 15, you get purple trunks. And if you couldn't, you had to wear white so trunks. So the losers are over oh, here in their white trunks. They're marked. Fuck, man. That right? kind of labeling is so, yeah. oh, that's so debilitating. Ridiculous. They got rid of it finally. Yeah. That was we... the presidential fitness program, physical fitness Under program. which administration? Oh, gosh. Richard Nixon, I think. Uh. Nothing like alienating your brothers and sisters. Oh, man, I used to feel so sorry for those guys. So what color trunks were you wearing? <laughs> I wouldn't wear them. You were, were you just wearing a jock strap? No. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, I earned my purple trunks. It was the big deal. Yeah. And uh, I gave them away. Yeah. And I just wore white or green or something. You know, those are the guys that are going to fucking blow up the earth. Yeah. Or save us. One of the two. These well, are the guys we treated like shit. Because they were the 90-pound weaklings. Yeah. And they were made examples of and yeah. fun of and well, couldn't get the girls. And that's and, where, you know, psychosis comes from. You know, these guys are just butchered all through school and, and turned around in their head and they're made fun of. So and why, are, why are people going into schools and killing children and, and doing these crazy, yeah, ridiculous... Yeah. Why are there Adolf Hitlers in the world yeah. and all these nutballs because right. we do what to people? That's right. Yeah, you are right, Mark. Yeah. So anyway, back to Chuck. He yeah. wouldn't. He would have none of that. He would take them. He'd be patient, show them over and over and over again. And and all of a sudden, I'd see these guys because our lessons were you know half hour lessons, but I'd get there like an hour early just to sit there and warm up. Mm -hmm. The things were difficult. He it was not easy, but if you practiced every day, you'd have it for the next lesson. He'd, right. He'd never give. He didn't me make it impossible. For you no, to succeed. no. Yeah. So, and he'd know just what the level of each student was. You right. know, like if this guy's having trouble, you don't overload him with a bunch right. of stuff. Right. And you don't have great expectations. You mean like how you should teach everybody everything that we're yes, teaching? Yes, as an individual. Like that? Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's a good concept. Yeah. And uh, so, he's a great man, this uh, Chuck Brown. He's one of my heroes, he's a guru for sure. Uh, his whole philosophy was absolutely spot on. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. And you are proof of that, clearly. I thank you for that. That's so, really nice. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, this is a mathematical equation. This is not overly organic. I mean, A plus B, you went, you did it with a guy who can do magnificent things for people, and you're just a product of his genius, really. So it has nothing to do with you, Tom. Don't worry about it. Thank goodness. I don't think I can take that much responsibility. I'm just kidding. Of course, it is all you, and you have to take all of that responsibility. So after that experience... I came up to San Francisco State and, and started up with Chuck, and I went in it in earnestly at this point. Right. So every single Friday for six years, I drove to Oakland and took my lesson with Chuck. I can't wait for my son to hear this. Yeah. Really, I mean, this is part of the thing, this whole dedication to doing something that you love and mm -hmm. being committed to it. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't. It's the biggest lesson. It's not about drums. No, of course not. It's, it's just about getting a little self-discipline and learning how to have that discipline, right. how to utilize it, how to implement it. Right. And it's not easy. It's still not easy. I struggle with it still every day. It's, yeah. it's, it's a lot easier just to, you know, pop a beer or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. But You know what? The results are guaranteed. This is part of natural law. Yes. If you do the work, yes. you can't not succeed That's in, right. in some way. That's right. It's impossible. That's right. It's, it's failure proof, it's, literally. It's amazing. It's amazing what it does. It, 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 eventually, everybody sort of levels out, 
and then it's who you are and and you know your your particular spiritual self or whatever right. starts to come through you know if everybody practices this technique 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 you know pretty soon uh, you're going to play a paradiddle as fast as I'm going to play a paradiddle right but it's where you put it and how you steal it where you accent it what you do it on all these different things that make us different and it's that's the beauty of it you get 10 people playing a snare the, the 10 different snare drums and it's going to be different because their snare drums are tuned to their it's them that tuned it's their drum you get 10 different players playing the same snare drum it's still going to sound 10 different ways just from the approach and the inflection subtle sometimes but not always well this is the whole concept i have behind training human beings properly it's the same exact i mean you just described this people say utopic that's insane it's not there's just a reasonable way you give everybody these incredible set of skills and then they are going to take those and make them their own in their own way and express themselves Mm -hmm. but you're talking about everybody essentially has a similar skill set right and then you you don't see this huge polarity of people overly rising to the top because we're all skilled now we can all do the paradiddle now we're all doing it in our way and applying it in other Mm -hmm. ways and this is the way to get us evolved to that next level. Is yeah. this, this caring enough, being that teacher, who no matter where you are in your ability, that they stay with you as a parent should and keep guiding you, keep doing the work with you because we know that eventually you're going to get it. Yes. You're going to get yes. it. You can't not get it. And perhaps more importantly, what are you going to get? You're going to get the way not the end you're going to get the path right to anything so if drums aren't necessarily what turns you on you've already learned what it takes to grow and to learn and to be self-disciplined you learn focus you learn concentration more than the three seconds a baby will show with a rattle right you know so a fascinating thing came into my realm the other day it's a book called the disappearing american adult Hmm. And I've seen this, and I do believe this, that part of the problem with modern media, you know, uh, you know technology, and, is that everything's so fast. Yeah. You know? And it, it, it hits you fast, but it leaves you fast, too. Right. And so there's none of this, like, really the hard work that's, that we're talking about here. Right. It's the day after day after day repetitious exercise, repetitious, but it it doesn't just apply to the drums. It applies to every single thing that's worth anything. Yeah, like us. If if you want to read, if you want to write a book, what do you have to do? You got to write every day. Yeah, and you have to read every day too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an amazing thing. It's it's amazing to see uh, how things have changed, how much more difficult it is to get one of my students to just settle into this kind of program. Yeah. They say, well, I, I can go to YouTube and learn all this stuff. Yeah. And I say, well, you know, it doesn't really work all that well. You're going to be thinking you're all that, and you're going to be playing in a way that's going to give you bursitis or tendonitis in five years. You know, you don't think about that because you're impervious to pain or anything now. You're 14 years old. Right. You don't even understand what can possibly happen right. to you. You know. I'm glad you're saying this because my daughter wants to take violin lessons. And I actually recommend, I said, well, check out YouTube. But I, I'm, I'm listening yeah. to you. No, no, no. And it really does, it requires hand-holding. <clears throat> That's right, it does. It requires a good teacher. Yeah. And one in town is Beth Martin. 
Beth Martin yes, for violin? Uh, yes. Okay, cool. I would definitely recommend Thank her. You. She's also a great teacher and just a great person. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the problem with the YouTube thing is that nobody's standing over you going, no, right. your shoulder's too high. Right. You know, right. and you're going to have neck problems down the road or whatever. Right. You know, no, no, like no. This is, this is why we need each other. This yeah. is the whole reason there's seven billion of us on the planet. <laughs> we all need each other to do these things, you know? Yeah, thank you for, really, that's really important because I will talk to Zoe today and, and explain to her, like, let's find you. If right you really on. want to do this, let's get you what you really need Great, Mark. to have success. I have to applaud you as a parent because that's really what makes it happen. I just think it's good for a human being to be with another human being who's instructing another human being. For us to learn from mm -hmm. each other is so important because we get way more out of it than then this just simple instruction on this specific thing, of course. And that's why I'm applauding you. Yeah. You know, you just sat and learned something too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most, uh, a lot of parents, I'll say, when their child says, I want to learn the drums, <laughs> they're going to go, well, how about the, you know, flute? Or how about, the, you know, they're not going to go there. They, how could you not, though? Why wouldn't you just want to facilitate even if they do it for 10 minutes, even if they decide they don't like it. I mean, our job is to help them mm -hmm. expose them to as much as, as humanly possible so they can end up with something they really love that they want to do. Because being self-centered and being selfish does not apply to being an adult. Well, it doesn't apply to being a human being very well. Right, exactly. Yeah. So they're more concerned about the neighbors and how loud it's going to be and it's going to be, you know. It's all fear-based. It is. Yeah. It's all, we're mm -hmm. afraid to do the right thing. Most stuff is. Yeah, we're afraid of the consequences of what seems reasonable in our minds but is overshadowed by societal bullshit that we've made. Nobody's done anything to us, you know. This is all yeah. us doing our own stupid shit to each other, right. to ourselves. Right. We don't have anybody imposing their will on us other than us. It's so crazy. Nutsy stuff. It is. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you rose through that and your parents obviously so you know when you started playing drums as a young person how did your parents uh, work with you well, on that they, they let me go they let me go at it yeah you know there did were, you have drums were, in the house yes i had them in my bedroom yeah but you know there were problems i mean i couldn't play whenever i wanted of course sure. and you know i didn't know about a practice pad and all that right I mean, yet there are no digital kits <laughs> no so uh after college I was studying intensely with Chuck, and then I got involved in a group called the Klezmorum. I auditioned for a klezmer band, which is sort of... You're not Jewish. <laughs> well, we played Guess the Goy a lot. What? Guess the Goy? Yeah. That's funny, because Howard Stern used to do the show, Who's a Jew? <laughs> right. right? Right. That's well, hilarious. That's, that comes from... Uh, Maybe that's where he got that from. <laughs> Well, Heavenly Discourse is a, is a book uh, where Jesus is walking through the clouds talking to God, and he says, Father, am I a Jew? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, um, later on, there's discourse between God and Mark Twain and Rabelais and Voltaire and all, you know, so it's really And what crazy. is this from? It's, it's a book called Heavenly Discourse. Oh, my God, I have to read this. Yeah. Well, I'll, Sounds like it should be a play. It is written in play form. Oh, how appropriate. Yeah, yes. I've already... Have I've, you brought it to I've their attention? I brought it to Camelot Theater and said, look at this. And? How long ago was that? No, bring it that to the big boys. Oh, well, you know. Bring it to him. 
<laughs> Let him see it. But give it to him as his idea. Just like well, of if course. you can leave it under of his course. doorstep or something, like an angel <laughs> dropped it. <laughs> There's another book, Earthly Discourse, which is an, which are the animals talking to God. Oh my God, these sound the really... apes and the orangutan scene. You know, we have nothing to do with these humans. They didn't come from us. Right. They didn't evolve from no, us. No, of course. You know, we are not taking responsibility <laughs> for this shit. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, back to the klezmer thing. Klezmer is loosely termed Yiddish jazz. Right. It really comes from Eastern Europe and Central Europe. In the 1800s, they migrated over to New York. And the blend of that music with uh, the American jazz that was going on, the street performers would literally be across the street from each other, and then they get together. And they ah, start. people are busking just Oh, yeah, they're up. just on the street. I mean, what else are they going to do in, the, in New York in the, in the summer? No TV, no computers, no anything else. You should have been they here play. at 6 a.m. Yeah. There was someone blowing a fucking horn out here. <laughs> right on. At 6 a.m. <laughs> no, that's like not really right on. No, it wasn't right no, on, no. and I'm, I'm, I'm holding my phone going... Like fucking call the cops. Well, if you did, they would have gotten rid of them because you're not supposed to be able to do anything like that. Well, I'm until eight o'clock. Well, I'm kind of a. I'm at a crossroads here. I don't want to be the fucking police on somebody expressing themselves, but it is six a.m. Yeah. Well, and you had a right to express yourself. No, I know. It's not like gunshots (laughs) in the park where I have to call. Um, And I do hear people generally just idiots just being loud and obnoxious on the streets but it's a musician man and he's not playing anything you know good okay <laughs> you could say good but but at of, six in the morning you have every right to get the okay. guy out of your ear okay well he did stop i just i had to be patient all right it was a right. test of That's patience and his good. will against mine yeah. anyway so you you remember the max fleischer cartoons yeah, Tex Avery yeah. and Max Fleischer was. But that's really, old. That's before me. It's all old stuff, but the music in the background was klezmer music, and it was the klezmer music that was being shaped by American jazz at the time. Betty Boop. Yeah. And then a little later on, it's the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, and then a little later than that was Artie Shaw. Right. Artie Shaw had really heavy klezmer influence on his playing, and he actually played a what's called a Freylock, which is a this sort of klezmer beat through this whole solo thing that he did on one album, I was blown away. It goes from this big band jazz to this right out of the klezmer songbook. Amazing. And then there's uh, at UC Berkeley, they have the Judith Magnus archives of old music. And you can find Naftuli Bronwyn and uh, these old, old school klezmer bands that had been recorded in New York. Mm-hmm. Very rare. Well, what's the origin of the klezmer music? Eastern and Central Europe. It's, uh, you know, just kind of uh, the scales are from there, the, the, the beats are from there. Is this you know? pre or post, like, World 1800s. War II? Oh, 1800s, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So the magic happened for me when they came into America and they were staying true to their form but they were being influenced by what was coming up from New Orleans and right all that you know the Dixieland type stuff and and vice versa and you can hear the Dixieland in the klezmer I mean it's very you know global music absolutely yeah one thing that most people don't realize about klezmer music because they uh nowadays they'll always have a violin and they'll Mm -hmm. always have a piano right 
It was neither there was one none of, of that. Before. Neither one of those were involved. What were the primary it instruments? Was, uh, uh, some sort of reed, like clarinet or yeah. saxophone, trumpet, trombone, drum, snare drum, yeah. cymbal, yeah. bass drum, maybe, and that was about it. Yeah, super simple. Um, sometimes they'd have a you know a mallet instrument, maybe a butterfly harp or something uh -huh. like that. Yeah. And uh, anyway, that was fascinating, and that took me across the U.S. and Canada uh, more than once, many times. Got to play in New York. I got to, you know, kind of be a big shot for a while on the tour circuit. Right. And uh, played Lincoln Center in wow. New York wow. and places like that. My first gig with them was at the uh, Minneapolis Symphony Hall. That was my first job with and this there, group. And that's how many people were at that gig? 2,000. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a so breakout. That was freaking me out. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but, but you're playing the same whether it's 2,000 or two. Oh, so. uh, man. It's, it's, but I can't imagine that kind of yeah. pressure. <laughs> I think the largest crowd was at the Vancouver Folk Festival, and uh, that was about 10,000 people. Wow. And that, You know, when you stop the tune that you're playing for 10,000 people, there's this pregnant silence, and then whoo, this amazingly thrilling applause comes up. And it just you can feel it just sort of recharging your batteries in a way. Well, isn't this the you rock know. star motivation? Uh, I mean, aside from the other I things. Think, I think it's anybody's motivation that's just, playing for an audience. Well, that's what I mean. For, yeah. 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 But there is a great joke. You know, what's the difference between a rock guitarist and a jazz guitarist? What? The rock guitarist plays three chords in front of 20,000 people, and the jazz guitarist plays 20,000 chords in front of three people. Right. <laughs> I'm sure there's a yeah. lot of those. Oh, a lot of bad, terrible jokes, jokes yes. yeah. A lot of drummer and bassist jokes. <laughs> Bad too. jokes. I yes. know. I always cringe. I'm sorry about that. Tell often. me. Tell me the best. Tell me the best drummer joke you've heard. Uh, probably Mickey Dolan's. <laughs> As in being the joke himself. Wait, high five that Mickey Dolan. That's funny. I'll tell you one of the greatest drum parables. It's with the old Chinese proverb: "By each of your enemies' children, a drum." <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. That's very funny. All right, so you, you're you're blowing up now. You're doing it. You're playing in front of a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I. You're how old now? When you did that? Oh, God, in my twenties. Okay. Something. Okay. And you were still living in the Bay Area. Yes. Okay. Living in Berkeley at this time. Okay. Did you attend Berkeley? No, no. Okay. No, I attended San Francisco State. Yeah, but you yeah. didn't. Like, no, no, make I didn't get jump. my master's or okay. anything. I just got bachelor. So I was growing sort of tired after about three years of this the music is linear and it's kind of not the jazz that I was really fascinated and interested in playing right. which I still am right but I auditioned to go to Europe and we passed the audition right so I had to make a decision at that point did I want to go see Europe the way I'd been seeing the United States we played New Orleans we pulled in at five in the evening did a sound check did the show stayed overnight in a Motel 6 got up at 6 in the morning and had to go to the airport and fly to Orlando, Florida. So I wasn't able to go into the French Quarter. I wasn't able to go to the Commander Palace right. or Tipitina's or anything like that and see my favorite musicians. Right. Straight to It work. was so frustrating. Yeah. You know. And that's not the way I wanted to see Paris. Yeah. In, all, in different places. Yeah. So I said, I'll do the audition with you and then find somebody else. I'll play with you until you get somebody that you're happy with. Because mm -hmm. they were all really good guys and really nice people. 
the manager was co-founder of the Bread and Roses Festival in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Anyway, with Richard and Mimi Farina. So they got the audition. Uh, we, they passed. And I was, I slowly, I played a couple more gigs with them and they were working in another drummer and they took them to, to Europe. Which I sort of regret the decision now, but I don't know, back then it was very clear to me that I did not want to see Europe like that. Right, of you course. Know? Yeah, because you don't really see much. You, know, you see inside of hotel rooms and concert halls and that's about it. Right. So after that, I came back and freelanced in San Francisco as a drummer. I just played with anybody and everybody for right. like, you know, sometimes seven nights a week. I played in Redwood City and San Francisco and Marin County and Alameda and Vallejo. Were they jazz Office gigs or just? A lot of them were. Yeah. A lot of them were. But it was just anything. You take anything just to survive, right. you know. And I played punk music. I played. Really? I played in a band called The Job. And I played in the Barry Beam show. And uh, What were the venues? Uh, Mabuai Garden. Uh, they call it the Fab Mab. Yeah. In uh, Hotel Utah. Is this in the city? Yeah. Yeah. Hotel Utah and Club Foot. The, yeah, I don't know these places. I was not a <laughs> club guy when I was. Yeah. In San well, this is sort of underground punk stuff. Yeah. But I uh, I played with the job at the Club Foot, which was. Uh, That's funny. Yeah. And they, they, <laughs> there was a house band called the Club Foot Orchestra. <laughs> but it almost uh, sounds sad. <laughs> I, I played in a group called Glenn Smith and the Mavericks huh. when we did this, you know, sort of. For a while in the Bay Area, it was quite popular to be a rockabilly kind of uh, country band sort of thing. Right. Cowboy music. Um, you can play anything, of course. Well, I can try. Yeah. And, but, uh, yeah, that was fun. I, I, I played at, in that band. There was a guy named Peter Miller who was friends with John Lennon, and he showed me all these pictures of him, you know, sitting with the Beatles on the couch at his house and stuff in, in England. And he was known in England as Big Boy Pete. And he gave me a couple albums, and he was the first guy to bring a sitar into rock and roll. Wow. Amazing. Wow. You know? And uh, then he became Peter Miller and the Wildcats, and he had his own recording studio on Union Street in San Francisco. Mm. And he recorded Tuxedo Moon, Chris Isaac, uh, uh, Peter Bilt, who are some of the other guys? A host of other, Bonnie Hayes and the Wild Combo. Mm. You know, he was their first go, sort of, you know. Right, introduction and Before recording. they hit the big time. Sure, yeah. yeah. Cool. That was pretty cool. So you're how old now? I'm 63. Ah, you're still youthful. And are you teaching drumming full time? I am. Oh. And is that your pretty much your revenue stream, that's it? Well, there's not much of that, but I'm still playing drums. Yeah. I'm playing in, you know, several gigs a month anyway. And you have to, kind of, to like live right yeah i'm also a sculptor and a potter so i sell pottery and here and there and a sculpture occasionally you have a very eclectic home shall we say on the yes. outside when you enter your place yeah it's uh it's pretty remarkable my son was pretty blown away when we walked up. <laughs> maybe that's why he hasn't come back he's scared <laughs> dad is he a demon <laughs> well a little bit who isn't i mean come on <laughs> he really enjoyed himself too it's it's it will be tragic in some way if he does not leverage the potential that I think he has, uh, because, I mean, he's adopted. He's not, you know, it's not my DNA strand, but his birth mother is a stupid, talented musician. 
stand-up bass player, illustrator, just smart. All well, I just want to make it clear that I'm available whenever you want to, you know, try again. I know, so I know, and I appreciate that. I know there's no, this is not a personal thing. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't have a lot else going on. He kind of asked for it. I was impressed and pleased that this was his idea. We drove to uh, Eugene together to pick up a new computer, and we just fucking rocked out the whole way there. And I might have been air drumming, you know, driving with my knees on the freeway and fucking drumming. And I think it occurred to him, I was like, yeah, I want to do what dad's doing there, that dad loves doing, and there's something to it. And, you know, you can I drum. like your drumming, Mark. Really? That's yeah, nice. Yeah, I do like it. I told you that the first time I heard you. Yeah, I thought there was something wrong with you. And maybe there still is something wrong with you that you appreciate whatever the hell I'm doing. It's one of us. Yeah, okay. Um, I do like doing it. As a matter of fact, when I was in Thailand, uh, I was at this gentleman's bar, and I saw two guys on the stage, both playing guitar and singing, and singing American Standards, which was funny, of course. And there's a kid behind them. And I don't know, I just made a beeline. I... I wasn't even drunk or high, nothing. I got up and I walked up to the kit and I just sat down and I waited for them to look back and they did. And I said, you play whatever you want. I can play pretty much anything. I fake it. I said, okay. And I played two sets with them and it was awesome. <laughs> and there were huge oh, applause. Yeah, they go, who's this? <laughs> I mean, I was in a place too where there's not very many Falong, which is foreigner. I was the only American in that place and to get up and just start drumming with these guys and having a good time. And it was really super. I ended up doing it twice. And uh, they asked me to come back. And the reason I didn't return was I found out I could get in trouble. Oh. You literally need a work permit. Oh. It's like New York in the 30s. Yeah. Well, this is kind of like if you go to Thailand, you are in the 30s. You are definitely going to the Wayback Machine. And uh, so I didn't want to really gamble it, you know, being in a country by myself on a limited passport or limited visa. I don't want to get tossed for playing drums. That's be kind of embarrassing. Hey, why'd you leave? Yeah, yeah I was playing drums and they kicked me out of the country. <laughs> I mean, it sounds fucking stupid to begin with that they would do that. <laughs> of course, it's ridiculous. What a, what a I'm legacy. Just playing. What a legacy. You know, it's playing drums. The whole I'm playing. This is just play. Yeah. We're having yeah, a good time here. Yeah. Why take it so fucking seriously? <laughs> anyway, uh, so a, th that's a probably that's the last time I played drums was in Thailand. <laughs> well, I've never played drums in Thailand. That's okay, a, so that's I'm, a bucket list for me, man. Well, and and yeah, it was really awesome, and they were good musicians too, and they had their little notebook full of all these John Denver. I mean, there were all kinds of interesting music. They were, and I knew everything, so it was really easy. <laughs> and they were fun. shocked that no matter even when they started going into some Thai music, because you know, I'm a pretty good listener, and that's the only reason I'm even remotely decent at what I do is I'm listening to what other people are doing. Right. Uh, I feel kind of sensitive to what the other right. musicians are doing. Right. And so they started playing some Thai music that of course I'd never heard before. And I think they were pretty shocked that I could stay with it and add some interesting little fills to their business and, you know, add something to something I'd never heard before. Oh, that must have uh, been a lot of fun. Which is why I enjoy doing open mics here in town, because I would back up anybody, and I don't need to hear this shit to... I mean, everything's got a basic something. I mean, in drums, there's a basic beat that's happening, and then, you know... Uh, so, and mo mo most people are not really doing anything that complex musically at an open mic, where you can't just... You know, Most of it's polka. Well, look, what we're using for a table here for the microphone and everything, this is my cajon. 
Yeah, I you know, know. It's a pretty ghetto setup, you know. I like it, though. Uh, and it works. So if I'm not going to play it, at least I'm using it for something. Multi-use. The piano behind you should have at least a plant on it because... <laughs> oh, you play wonderful piano as well. Well, I don't know about wonderful, but thank well, you. I do. I enjoyed it. That's, thank you. When did you hear me play? At my house. Oh, yeah. yeah I used to, oh, that's sudden, right. All of a sudden, I hear this incredible piano coming out of the other room, and I came in, and it was you. I loved that we rehearsed at your place. Yeah. It was that cool. was so awesome, dude. Thank you so much You're for... Welcome. Well, I, you know, Doug, Doug gave me some dough for no, it. No, 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 I know that. But I'm just saying, it was just a nice, comfortable, easy... And just the fact that you did have a piano there. And yeah. and you had everything we needed, you know, pretty much. So, it was fun. I, yeah. It was really good. And, and I think it made me a better drummer, actually, playing at your place. Great. You know? Because there's that vibe there. You're teaching. Yeah, and, yeah you man. Know, and yeah, well, I, th I think the... the major reason that I enjoyed your drumming is, is the fact that you listen so well. You listen so intently and respond to the other players. That's well, rare. That's the highest compliment I've received from all the people that I've played with. Like, you know, Gene Burnett is like, they like playing with me because I'm listening to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not just finding the beat and, and sticking with it. Mm -hmm. I, I really want to collect the subtleties of what's happening around me so I can, you know, raise and lower my volume and, yeah. and just accentuate whatever someone else is doing. Because yes. I'm not the guy. I'm just a guy yeah. helping the guy right, do right, his right. thing or right. her thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I love being that. I don't want to be uh, on the spotlight with the microphone. I want to be on the guy who's just helping that happen mm -hmm. and really to the best, you know, yeah, that I can yeah. to add something to it. I get it, it, man. I dig yeah. it. And I love watching you play, by the way. I've seen you play many times, and uh, you're the fucking consummate guy. You're Thanks, a guy. Mark. And yeah, I've been told by many people that you are the best drummer in the Valley. That is by so nice, far. man. That and, is really high praise, and I appreciate it very much. Well, you've earned it because you've done the work. I mean, that's the bottom line is, you know, if you put the 15,000 hours in, you're going to be a fucking genius at whatever you do. It's unavoidable. This is this guarantee <laughs> that we get that unless you quit... If you keep going, persistence without question will pay off. Because, first of all, you're talking about physical behavior patterns. You're just mastering that ability to not just listen, but to respond. Have your body automatically respond in your way, through mm -hmm. your channel, your creativity. Exactly. But once you have the chops, you have the chops. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the rest is being a conduit. Pretty much. something much more powerful than we are. No doubt. I mean, even... All the shit I'm saying now, I just look for the download. I don't really want to have to think because I'm not that smart. But I know that whatever is downloading to me is clearly hugely intelligent. Yes. And I just have to let that come through. And then I don't look like an idiot. I think that's I, huge. I, well, I'm only an idiot when I'm a human. When I'm just myself. That's when I'm the biggest idiot. But when I allow for the other things to happen, a lot of that idiot kind of goes away. So I rely on <laughs> the other. So yes, I, good. Yeah. It's really important. And I wouldn't even do this if it was just me. Because I really don't have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> How you feel about what we did here? Uh, it's it's always nice just to hang with you and talk. We haven't done much of that, but, you know, I always enjoy it. Super fun. Yeah, man. Super fun. I, I appreciate, appreciate you doing it, yeah, too. you too, brother. You too. Wow, I'm just noticing your finger. That's so <laughs> wild. All right, so I will talk to Sam and find out if we're still doing something. Okay, bro. And I'll get back to you. Yeah, man. Cheers, brother. Been a pleasure. Mine too.
Well, that's the show. Super fun to be with Tommy Stamper. Great to have him. And it was pretty funny that he brought his girlfriend. I had no idea he was doing that. But it doesn't matter. Whatever. It's just a live audience member. That's my first live audience member. So I'll just take that as a, as a bonus. And uh, again, I'm always honored to be on the mic and share my life with you and my opinions with you and my experiences with you. And I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to come back, keep coming back. Now, I'm releasing this show quickly because it was so fantastic. The editing on the first five shows presented, you know, a a variety of challenges. And it's great. I needed the experience. I actually love the editing. It's pretty fantastic. It reminds me of, like, my Photoshop editing or video editing. Editing is taking something and, and making it the way you want it. So editing is a pretty fantastic thing, and I actually think we should all learn how to edit. At least self-edit on the fly what we say, uh, which means to slow down and really take a look. Uh, But anyway, this interview with Tom took me literally two hours to edit. I didn't take much out. It flowed pretty nicely, and I was super grateful, and I said it out loud, thank you, that uh, I didn't have to do much work on on, uh, our chat. So that was really cool to come home in between driving the taxi last night and just sit down at the computer and kind of bang it out. Uh, You know, Tommy does all the work. He did all the talking. I just had to prompt him with a few questions and and enjoy him telling me his his life story. Uh, Great to talk to you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Doug Fergus and NakedRealityMusic.com for this awesome track to close out my show. Thanks, Doug. You rock. www.NakedRealityMusic.com Citizen 44.